We start with the hotel bill. That's the talk of Ottawa today. Nearly $400,000. That was the hotel bill for the government entourage that traveled to London for the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. Can you believe that? They stayed at one of the swankiest, most expensive five-star hotels in London, the Corinthia Hotel. Check this out. They rented one luxury suite, $6,000 a night. I've got Ari Goldkind standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to Toronto Sun columnist Brian Lilly here. He broke this story speaking yesterday to our own Jazz Joe Hall here. Look, I know people in Vancouver will laugh at this, but there are many places in the country where when you add up both what they paid at the Corinthia and what they paid at the Hampton, it comes out to over $397,000. There are many places in the country you can buy a house for that. And this was less than a week's stay. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Ari Goldkind. Ari is a criminal defense lawyer, legal analyst, political commentator. Pleased to welcome him back. Ari, thanks for coming on. Good to be with you, Mike. Okay, Ari, we don't expect the Prime Minister and the Governor General here to be staying in some budget hotel on a, on a trip like this. I mean, obviously they're going to stay high-end high end digs here, but is this too high-end? Over the top? Is this excessive? So there's some nuance to the story, Mike, and there's two angles I have on it, neither one of which I see being discussed, which bothers me. The first one, and just so your listeners know, you and I don't pre-script. You don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what you're going to say. The Brian Lilly aspect of this is actually quite important, Mike. And in the time that we have, I want to make this point. There is a death of investigative journalism in Canada. Everything seems to be now said or done on behalf of the prevailing political party, i.e. the Liberals. Brian Lilly's reporting is important. doesn't matter whether you're pro or for the government on this, but without Brian Lilly looking into this through the Freedom of Information Act, Mike, how would we even know about this? This isn't going to be talked about by the Globe and Mail. This isn't going to be talked about by the CBC. And we now live in a country where local and investigative journalism is badly hurting. So the first takeaway I have to this, Mike, before I give you my opinion, is that this is the kind of thing that Canadians should be demanding more of, no matter which side of the fence we're on. Because these stories matter. Uh, They're interesting. They're juicy. I mean, people are going to be more up in arms of the $356,000 here than the millions were, you know, urinating away on the Ukraine, to get controversial for a minute. But these kinds of stories don't get followed unless an intrepid journalist takes time to do the access of information and finds it out. Now, to the $6,000 a night hotel suite and the bill, I'm of mixed mind of it. I'll tell you why, Mike. Mixed mind. I don't think that the Prime Minister, and I don't think you do either, thinks that the Prime Minister has to sleep in the Red Roof Inn, okay? We're not a broke country. He has the right to sleep in a decent suite at a decent hotel. This is a hotel that's more expensive than the other five-star hotels in London. It's a busy time. You know you're not going to get a $250 a night rate. Here's my takeaway for the actual cost. It takes a certain kind of personality who doesn't care about the taxpayer, Mike, to bunk up in a $6,000 a night suite on the taxpayer dollar. It really does. Now, you can ask yourself, would Polyev feel comfortable sleeping in that if he was a prime minister? I'm not so sure. Would Maxime Bernier? I'm not so sure. 
but either the governor general or the prime minister or somebody else did. That, to me, is a more interesting part of the story where nobody will fess up who stayed in the suite. And the last part of my answer, Mike, and the last part, because I know we're limited on time and I'm sure you have another question for me, is when you look at the list of the people who went, the hangers on, the governor generals that nobody in Canada really cares about, all of these clerks and hangers on and plus ones and an Olympian athlete and an actor from a U.S. TV show. I don't know that the Canadian taxpayer was comfortable divvying up and doling out more money in this inflation age for them. If the bill is high for the prime minister and the former prime ministers, I'm kind of okay with that. But when you look at the rest of the hangers on at the public trough, Mike, that's where I have a bigger problem with this. I'm taking a look down the list of the entourage here. So some of the former governors general that were in attendance here, Mikhail Jean, David Johnston was there. You got former prime ministers, including some conservative former prime ministers like Stephen Harper, which makes me wonder if the Conservatives will raise any any complaints about this. Yeah, Mark Tewksbury, a former Olympian, was there on the public dime. Sandra Oh, the actor, was there. So, yeah, I think you can certainly question the, the members of this entourage. Let me ask you about who stayed in this $6,000 a night room, because this one is a head-scratcher to me, too. Now, presumably... It was Canada's Governor General Mary Simon. You know, you got the got the head of state. You you would think she would get the fanciest room when she's a representative of the crown attending a royal funeral. But who knows? I mean, they won't say. Maybe it was Justin Trudeau stayed in that room. Well, Do you think my, they should? Should they disclose that? Who stayed in that room? Yes. So so here's yeah. the point, Mike. If they were going on their own dime, none of my business. If you're doing something on the taxpayer dime, and and if it's Mary Simon, that's about a thousand times more egregious to me than if it's the prime minister of our country. You could put Mary Simon in a police lineup tomorrow, and out of 10 Canadians, less than 0.2 of them would know who she is. Now, that's not necessarily meant to be, um, you know, a point without some hyperbole. But the idea that she would stay in the $6,000 suite while Trudeau stays in the $800 suite, if anybody's in the $6,000 suite, it's literally the head of this country who ain't well, Mary Simon. But well, I would, have, point, I would have, I would have thought, though, as, as she is the, the vice regal representative here in, in Canada, okay. the head of state, and it's a royal, royal funeral that she should get this fanciest digs. I no? don't think so at all. I don't think there's any Canadian who would think so who's ideologically <laughs> honest. I think if it was to be anybody, it would be Harper when he was the prime minister, uh, Paul Martin when he was the prime minister, the leader of the G7, G8 country, who, again, is not Mary Simon. But to your question, to your question, yeah. if taxpayer money is being spent, Mike, and this is my overall philosophy, I don't care if it's Paul Yev, I don't care if it's green, NDP. I don't care if Jagmeet Singh is wearing a watch for $30,000. If he bought it with his own money, not as much my business. Of course, he's for the working man. But if it's something that's bought with taxpayer money, Mike, it is not their money. And the idea that they can hide behind showing whose it is, who's in there, that to me shouldn't require a freedom of information request. That's my overall view of it, leaving aside who put their head on that very, very expensive pillow. Okay, last question for you. Do you think that this is, shows that government is out of touch here? I mean, right now we're going through record high inflation. People are having trouble 
making ends meet, paying their bills. We're going to be talking later on the show about how expensive it is to just buy food at the grocery store. And then they blow 400 grand on a hotel rooms. Like, is that like, is that out of touch? Is that not reading the room? How would you characterize? here's, Here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. If they believe this was justified, these were the going rates in London at the time where many hotel rooms were booked, that they should spend more than the Four Seasons, more than the Savoy. If this, yeah. isn't, if this isn't contempt for the Canadian taxpayer, and I don't mean the Canadian money launderers, Mike, who I go off on in this country. Most people who pay their taxes don't understand the extent of tax evasion and money laundering in this country. But if this isn't contempt for the Canadian taxpayer where you hide who stayed in the room, where you hide who had the suites, where you make an access to, uh, access to information uh, request mandatory, that to me suggests a contempt for the Canadian public. If Trudeau came to a mic tomorrow and said, here's who was in this room, here's why we spent it, here's why it's justified, I'd probably yeah. say nothing to see here. Ari, thank you for coming on today. Great to be with you, Mike. All right, let's talk about the Metro family. They wanted to buy a condo in Pitt Meadows, but they've got too many kids. Lucas Perry and Mackenzie Graham, they've got three kids, so five members of the family. They wanted to buy a condo in Pitt Meadows. Uh-oh, no condo for you. you got too many kids. The maximum number of occupants under the strata bylaws in this building, four, four people max. So they were out of luck here. I've got Tony Giaventu standing by. First, have a listen to this story from Global News reporter Julie Nolan. Lucas Perry and Mackenzie Graham have three kids under the age of two. The young family is running out of room at their rental condo in Coquitlam, now trying to buy their first home. We have our down payment um, like situated. We have everything. We want to be contributing to a mortgage rather than rent. Rent prices are insane right now in the city. Priced out of buying a condo close to Vancouver, they had an accepted offer at this complex in Pitt Meadows. It would have doubled their current living space, but... I feel like our family was discriminated against in this situation. As a whole, I don't think so, but this specific situation, it seems unjust. Unjust because the strata has a bylaw which limits the number of people in the unit to four people, not five. Us with Tony Giaventu now, Executive Director, Condo Homeowners Association of BC. It's always great to have him on. Tony, thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks a lot for having me, Mike. Kind of an interesting story, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. What do you think of it? I mean, do you sympathize with this young family here? Uh, totally. And there are a number of factors from a buyer's perspective. I think one of the issues that we have to face is we don't have a large inventory of two, three, four bedroom units in a lot of properties. And if we do, they're in really high end expensive properties. So, you know, you look at a lot of the properties, most of them are one and one bedrooms some two bedrooms and a lot of bachelor units. So, you know, we have an inventory shortage of family type housing, which is part of the problem. Yeah. Do most stratas have an an occupancy limit? Like there's a maximum number of people you can have per unit? Well, for strata corporations, I think they need to evaluate first off if this is even valid and no, actually very few strata corporations have occupancy limits. They basically Mm. tend to, monitor and function over what the occupancy limits were um, imposed under the permit. 
Uh, somebody might want to actually go to the municipality and see what the permit actually allowed. Um, and, you know, I think the owners have a pretty valid complaint here. Um, the intent to accommodate um, can be discrimination under the Human Rights Code, and certainly if they were discriminated based on family status. Um, and, you know, I think the final thing that needs to be added to this is, you know, you have a family that had two kids who live in this strata, and suddenly have a, they have another child. Yeah. Um, does this mean they have to sell their unit and move out, or they're going to be fined? Like, you know, you have to think about what the practicality of this is as well for a strata. Yeah, that occurred to me too. Like, what if you've got, okay, you've got two kids. All right. So you're allowed to buy a condo in this building, but another, another kid comes along. Then what? Maybe I guess you'd be kind of, I mean, I can't think they wouldn't kick you out because you had a kid, another kid. Well, they're not going to kick you out, but it's going to create a heck of a lot of conflict. Um, and they are probably, we do have circumstances where this has occurred. Um, this has occurred with age restrictions where it's 19 and over and where a couple have had a kid and now the corporation have basically given them notice um, that they are um, in violation in the bylaws um, or that they um, need to find another accommodation. It's really a challenge. So, you know, I think strata corporations really push the line of what's acceptable within their authority sometimes. Okay, speaking to Tony Giaventu, Condo Homeowners Association. Tony, there are always stories in the headlines around condo and strata rules. Let me ask you about... The controversy over David Eby, who will be the next premier here shortly in British Columbia, and his promise to bring in a ban on on rental bans, right? So on so how would this work now? He is saying that Strata's condo buildings should not be allowed to put in a rule that you can't rent your condo out. Correct? Yeah, yeah. So we have um you know, we've we've there's no question that we've lost a lot of housing across the province. And look at just look at Seashelt uh, last month who adopted a local bylaw that really restricts the number of Airbnbs because they lost so much housing. And so, you know, we do have a housing issue. I'm, I'm not sure this is going to solve any problems per se because all of the stratas prior to 2010 were entitled to have rental bylaws. Many of them don't. Some of them prohibit them. Some of them allow a certain percentage. But the challenge we have in British Columbia is we have a really high number of strata corporations that are less than 50 units. They're self-managed. They rely on their volunteers. And and the difficulty they have is they try to control their operational function. So, you know, they often limit the total number of rentals to five or something like this. You know, it it opens the door to speculators and investors, which I'm afraid is probably going to, well, it's going to expose a lot of these properties to a lot of um, conditions for buyers. But the other side that it's going to do is it's we're going to end up in a situation which is already tough as it is to get enough people to sit on our strata councils to be able to manage Mm. them as volunteers. You know, we're we're talking about 20,000 strata corporations that are under 50 units across the province. So, you know, it's going to have some effect. Most of those buildings, by the way, are 100% occupied. So I don't really know how this is going to solve a rental problem. Yeah, I think you raise a lot of really great points. And I wonder if maybe EB might back off on this once he gets into office, in the premier's office, because I can understand how he says, look, we need more rentals. Like, I get that. Yeah, we need more. 
places for people to rent. But by saying that if you own a condo you know, or a, a condo strata cannot limit rentals, you cannot have a rental ban in a condo building, like, you know, you're not allowed to rent out your condo. To say that that's going to solve the problem, I think it could have the unintended consequence that you just touched on. It could actually drive up prices for condos because now you open it up to someone who wants to buy it a, a condo as a rental property, like an income property. Do you yeah. not? No, that's yeah. that's totally yeah. No, that's exactly what is going to end up happening. It, it is it 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 may in fact have a much worse effect than what we've intended as a result of this. Um, you know, I get it that you know, we're we're all trying to solve the rental problem and the housing availability yeah. problem, but you know, let's go back to 1995 to 2005 when the municipalities across the province were just allowing rental buildings to be converted to condos everywhere. You know, we lost a huge inventory of rentals back then. And so, you know, so now we're turning around and we're saying, OK, hey, by the way, property owners, um, we couldn't solve the problem as a government. So we're going to kind of lay it on your shoulders now and see if we can solve it. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the listeners calls on that one. Let me ask you another one real quickly before a break, and that's the issue of accessibility. And I know this is a, this is a key one for you right now. You've got a, a conference coming up on this. What are the issues around accessibility for condo buildings? Are, are there some barriers now in some of these strata bylaws? Go ahead. Well, it's not strata bylaws. It's the way buildings are designed. But here's a quirky thing that happens. High-rise buildings, apartment buildings with underground parking garages, all have designated handicapped parking spaces. Uh, and, you know, people with disabilities, physical, there may be, there may be visual impairment. There could be other things that are involved um, that necessitate um, the parking space. The difficulty that people have is you can get into the parking garage. You can't get into the elevator lobbies because you're now having to manhandle these very large, heavy fire doors. And virtually none of the buildings, with rare exception, actually have automatic door operators on them. So, you know, people kind of get feel like they're getting trapped in their buildings. If you're walking with a walker or a cane, but you're still driving, you're going to have a heck of a time getting into your building. So, you know, there's all kinds of these little barriers all over our building. Simple, simple things like handles um, uh, in um, entry door areas. And then you go down the hallway and you see the fire escape refuge where people with disabilities are supposed to go in case of a fire. And the door has a knob on it. It doesn't have a handle. You know, I, the municipalities have done a good job about encouraging accessibility, but there are a lot of barriers in our buildings. Right. Let's go right to your calls here on condo rules and regulations. My guest is Tony Giaventu, Condo Homeowners Association. Peter and Burnaby. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. Hey, thanks. Uh, your, your subjects today are across the board outstanding. So let me start with this one. Tony's point about unintended consequences, bang on. Uh, a unit that yeah. suddenly allows rentals, the value of that property goes up. Secondly, I can tell you that uh, strata councils will become extinct if, if we increase the number of rentals in properties, and it's already an issue. Restrictions on size of unit are not unusual. And where I'm, I feel badly for this Metro family, the reality is that we, even in our building, we limit the number of uh, occupants based on the number of bedrooms in that unit. I'll make two final points. One, government has no place in stratas. Stratas are run far more effectively than government is. They're democratically elected. They run, for the most part, as good democratic examples of, of government and governance. 
and I want government no part of it. Last but not least, we track our incidents every month. 70% of infractions on bylaws come from renters in our building on a regular basis. So let's just look at each unit as an individual case and let them run. Thank you, Peter, for a good call. On the issue of the rental ban that uh, the David Eby, the David Eby has, let me go to Tony Giaventu. Tony, like, you know, he made a similar point that we talked about earlier, that if you say that all condos must be allowed to be open, available to rent out by the owner, that potentially drives up the value of that, of that unit. How many, how many condo buildings or, or strata councils are no rentals allowed, you know? You know, we don't have a definitive statistic on that, but here's an interesting, interesting perspective or twist. Since January 1st, 2010, pretty much all of the new strata corporations created were automatically exempt from rental bylaws because developers could file an, um, a rental disclosure that excluded them from rental bylaws. Those units since 2010 actually have the highest vacancy rate because they're the units that were open to speculators. So we've seen vacancy rates in buildings post-2010 in some cases as high as 28 yeah. to 31%. Whereas wow. if you look at the buildings pre-2010 that actually have rental bylaws, the vacancy rate is 1% or less. So well, like, there you go. There's no math around this that proves that we have problems. Well, I think one of the challenges government is facing is they had um, something like 2,600 people who applied for an exemption from the vacant homes tax because their strata corporation had a limit on the number of rental bylaws, and they didn't want to sell their unit. And so they were excluded from the vacant home tax because of the rental bylaw. But that's like about 2,600 versus about six or 700,000 that may be subject to this. I don't know. The, the math just doesn't seem to support the no. decision. I think he's got a solution looking for a problem there that doesn't exist. Mark on the North Shore. Hi, Mark. Go ahead. Uh, thanks, Mike. Great show. And I always like to hear uh, Tony's input. Uh, longtime realtor here on the North Shore. I can assure you there's lots of strata corporations here that have occupancy limits. Uh, some okay. two-bedroom units here are pretty small, 750 square feet. Some can be much larger, of course. But my question is this. In terms of occupancy on a two-bedroom unit, where do you draw the line? A uh, family of five is okay. What about a family of six? What about if we put all four kids into the uh, one bedroom, mom and dad take the other one, and now we've got to get mother-in-law to move in permanently because we want some help with childcare, and she sleeps in the pull-out sofa in okay. the living room. You okay, know, I think it's uh, a good, good point. Tony, your thoughts. I mean, is there, is there an argument for a reasonable occupancy limit? Oh, absolutely. And and again, go back to my point that if you actually look at the occupancy that was issued with zoning, it's probably going to reflect those numbers anyhow. You're probably going to be looking at, you know, four or five in a two-bedroom unit as part of the occupancy that was um, permitted under the original development. So it, it's not going to be foreign of that whatsoever. I, I, and I think, I get, I get that people want to, you know, control with some reason the occupancy within the buildings because one of the challenges we have how do you manage the real abuses when there are nine or 12 people in a unit and we have certainly had that problem so you know the bylaw is necessary to manage this and you know and then we we end up with people arguing about the whole fairness thing in the building well i'm a single person in the building i only use this amount of water they're a family of six and they use so much more than i do but yet we pay the same strategies 
Ryan, you got Ryan and Cloverdale. You got 30 seconds running out of time. Go ahead, Ryan. I'll be quick. I mean, Tony's making some great points. A lot of your guests are, but I think the occupancy limit creates a real problem within reason. And it goes down to, um, if you want to have lots of kids, you got to buy a house. Nobody can afford a house. You have to be rich to have multiple kids. And what if you need to take care of your elderly parents who cannot afford a care home? That's another problem that created. And I think if Evie opens up uh, condo rentals, that yeah. is just a bad plan for disaster. Uh, I, think it's a ba- I think it's a bad idea, too. Rick, thank you for the call. Out of time. Tony, thank you for your time today. Mike, always a pleasure. Look forward to you next time. Okay. Here we go now with sky-high food prices. Are you getting gouged at the grocery store? Food prices have gone through the roof, soaring higher than the general inflation rate. It is sticker shock for sure at the grocery store. I got two teenage boys at home. These boys are major carnivores. They love their steaks and roast beef. These are hurting my wallet. These meat prices are brutal. Now here comes the Competition Bureau of Canada stepping in here. we got James Verkamen standing by to discuss. Have a listen to this. We've talked about this a lot on the show. Here is the federal NDP leader, Jugmeet Singh, speaking last week about grocery store profits. He wants the government to step in. Have a listen. We're seeing prices go up when it comes to food. We're seeing profits go up uh, in this sector, and we're not seeing the prices come down. It is clear to us that there is... Corporate greed contributing to inflation, broadly speaking, enough is enough. Let's get to the bottom of it and let's stop it. Okay, so he says it's not necessarily inflation. He calls it greedflation. He thinks there's some gouging going on here by the grocery store chains. All right, what is the Competition Bureau of Canada going to do about it? Well, they're stepping in here to review food prices. Let's discuss that now with my guest, James Verkamen. James is a professor of food and resource economics at UBC. Very pleased to welcome him. Hi, James. Thanks for coming on. Very good. Thank you. Okay. How bad is it out there? Like how much of food price has gone up? Yeah, it is really sticker shock. Like you've previously mentioned, I just tracked some food items and I took a look back at my records. And for example, a good old can of Heinz beans typically sold for like $1.79 before. They're up to like $2.49 now. So that's over 18 months. So that's a, a very large increase. Historically, over a 10-year period, we might see, you know, beans going up by, you know, 15, 20%. But now to do this over 18 months is really, really unprecedented. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's jumping out at a lot of people who are maybe wonder what's going on here is that the food inflation rate seems to be running consistently ahead of the overall general inflation rate. Like everything's up across the board. We got record high inflation, but food is up. It's up even higher, right? Yeah, and that's, but that's not just even recent. That's been happening for the last 10 years. About 10 years ago, oh. price inflation started to gradually move above general inflation, and now it's been accelerating, so now the difference is quite striking. Okay, let's talk about the Competition Bureau of Canada stepping in here now. There have been a lot of calls for this, for some sort of an investigation or review. What is the Competition Bureau going to do here? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm glad it's the Competition Bureau and not like a, a Liberal-appointed committee to investigate because I have a lot more faith in the Competition Bureau. They've done a lot of excellent work in the past. As you probably know, they're like investigating the Roger Shaw merger right now. Unfortunately, they don't have the power that they need to really get to the bottom of it, as you probably have noted from their from you know the uh, 
the announcement is that they don't have the power to compel food companies to disclose their you know pricing and that kind of stuff. So they're going to be somewhat limited. So that's disappointing. Yeah, and what they're doing, as I understand it, is is what's called a market study. So they'll be looking at this grocery sector, looking to see if there are any barriers to competition in there, like government regulations or, or policies. So it doesn't sound like like they're not going to be looking into any sort of specific allegations of gouging or, or collusion, or are they? Yeah. Not like the bread fixing case, you know, which in yeah. 2018, there was a very specific issue and, you know, there was, you know, proceedings against the companies that were involved. But, no, there's no specific allegations. But, you know, unfortunately, it's going to be very complicated because when you have it's the grocery retail retailers are competing with each other. So you can investigate that. I mean, right now, it looks like a pretty competitive environment. You know, you've got online groceries, you've got Walmart and Shoppers Drug Mart, all these different vendors selling it. So it looks pretty com- competitive. But then you've also got the vertical. You've got the uh, retailers buying from the food manufacturers, from the wholesalers. And that's very complicated. You know, you've got uh, the food manufacturers paying listing fees just to get shelf space. And they're negotiating on, you know, price um, promotions and uh, and longer term contracts. So I don't think it's going to be very easy to sort this out. Speaking to UBC, Professor James Verkamen, we're talking about food inflation in Canada the competition bureau of the country getting involved now. Like, you know, would they have any powers here when they do this so-called market study? Do they have any powers like force these grocery store chains to turn over data or documents or, or force their CEOs to testify or anything like that? I don't think they're at that level, no. So I don't know how much we're going to be able to, you know, to determine. I mean, my own reading, uh, looking at the actual, say, Loblaws as an example, and their books are, you know, they're public companies, so you can look at their quarterly report. And I'm looking at their profit margins, and there doesn't seem to be any smoking guns. I mean, Mm -hmm. if I can just bear with me for a little bit, like if you look at something like uh, Loblaws over the last, like the profit is simply uh, what's left over after they pay from the revenue minus all their costs. And then you sure. divide that by revenue. That's the profit margin. So their 10-year profit margin for law of laws is about just a little over 2%. So these are small margins, but, you know, they're very large companies. Like law of laws had um, a revenue last year of about $53 billion. So even with 2% profit, they're still making a billion dollars in profit. So that's their 10-year average. Uh, during the p- pandemic, like in December of twenty. Uh, of 21, just when the pandemic was ending, or so-called ending, uh, their profit margin has spiked up to 5.8%. But now Whoa. it's been coming down again, 3.5 as of last March, and the latest numbers is 3% as of last June. So it seems like they're settling back down rather than rising. So the kind of concept of greedflation, I don't know, it doesn't seem to be sort of an obvious thing, just looking at these numbers. Okay, that's very interesting. Let's listen to another clip here from uh, federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who's been very outspoken on this file. And here he is talking about what should be done about these soaring food costs. Listen to what he has to say here, and then I'll get your thoughts. Here's Jagmeet Singh. If it becomes clear that this is strictly corporate greed and the greed of CEOs driving up the cost of food, then that that merits a, a very firm action. We've called for things like a windfall tax. Okay, so he's talking about if if you can prove that there's gouging going on, you bring down the a, a taxation hammer on these companies, you hit them with a windfall profits tax. But it doesn't sound like to me like those numbers you just described, James. That would that would there be any justification for a windfall tax? 
Yeah, you know I me mean? and and why the retailers? Why not the craft food manufacturers? Because we we don't really know what their profits are as part of all of this, right? Um, and just yeah. I'd like to insert that you know Canada's not alone in this. I just looked at some uh, the latest figures for August and September. Like in the U.S., it's their food inflation was 11.2 percent, which is higher than our 10.3. Australia was 9.3, and Germany had a whopping 17.7 percent. <laughs> So wow. this is happening around the world. So it's hard to believe that it's just our retail sector that is somehow greedy and making profits. And, that you know, why would it be the same in every country? It's much more, you know, systemic uh, in throughout the supply chain that's causing these problems. What about we've seen some of the grocery store chains react to the pressure here, notably Loblaws and also some of their competitors following suit. So following suit, like Loblaws had said, OK, we're going to bring in a price freeze on some staple food items. So I guess like milk and bread and butter, they would bring in a, that's what they did, right? They brought in a price freeze. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. On the no name brand, the no name, the discount. No brand. name. Yeah. yeah. And what do you think of that? Because, you know, one of the things that guys like Jugmeet Singh are saying is like, okay, these guys are trying to argue that they're not gouging Canadians. There's, there's no collusion going on here or anything. But then if that's the case and why are they willing to freeze, freeze prices? But what your yeah. thoughts? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, they're not the first in doing this. I look again in Australia. You know, they last August already. Coles and Woolworths announced something very similar about freezing prices. So they're probably taking a, a book out of their or a page out of their playbook. But um, yes, I mean, Jagmeet Singh might have it right in that. You know, what? You know, why are they able to do this now if they're not gouging? But I look at it as a better perspective that maybe they're really trying to stop the sort of spiral of inflation if they can sort of send a signal. Loblaws is obviously a leader in the grocery retailing sector, at least out here. And if they can send a signal that they're going to start stop price inflation, maybe the, you know, the Sobeys will follow suit and uh, that will sort of start to put the brakes on things. You know, we can, we can only hope. But yeah, my other worry, though, is that, you know, once these, if inflationary pressure continues, once these freezes end, and I know in Australia they're ending in 2023 like quite soon already, the prices might simply jump up that much higher than they would have had you just left them unfrozen. Yeah, no, that is a very interesting point. What do you think should be done here right now? I think we can all agree this is a, this is a problem. This is tough on people. You, you know, you've got this limited review being done by the Competition Bureau of Canada, and you pointed out some of the lack of investigative powers there under this process, but do you think there should be a more aggressive intervention here or hearings or an investigation into this or not? No, I, I worry that would just be sort of, you know, a waste of taxpayer money to, to go through this, and we, we're not going to learn so much at the end of the day other than maybe some finger pointing. I, these uh, these uh, grocery pricing is just so complex. I mean, I've got examples here of numbers that, um, you know, this, I mean, I've been tracking a few products over time since like 2018. I think I read you the beans one at the beginning of this interview. And just looking at my numbers, there's no indication of a pattern that there's price leadership that everybody is following, you know, blah, blahs and these sorts of things. So it just shows you the complexity when you have, you know, companies like Heinz negotiating with, you know, uh, Sobeys and IG and, and, and blah, blahs. They're having different deals and maybe they have contracts that were in place. So for the a competition bureau to kind of understand what's going on and sort out who's to blame, I think it'd be very challenging. At the end of the day, I don't think we're going to learn very much. Thank you for coming on today with your thoughts on it. Yeah, it's a very interesting topic, and I hopefully it's going to go away where we won't have to talk about it much longer. <laughs> 
All right. Here we go with another big interest rate hike. This is coming at you tomorrow. The Bank of Canada expected to announce another interest rate increase. They've already done four recent rate hikes, so this will be number five. Markets bracing for a big hike here, possibly 75 basis points, three quarters of 1%. Could be less. A 75 basis point hike would bring the central bank rate to 4%. If you have a variable interest rate mortgage, line of credit, car loan, brace yourself. This is going to hurt again. It all comes with fears of recession in the country. We talked about that yesterday as a recession coming at us too here. Could a big rate hike actually make things even worse? Got Rob Levy standing by. Have a listen to this here now. This is Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada, explaining why the central bank has been hiking interest rates. Listen to how he explains it and justifies it. First, inflation is too high, and more people are getting more worried that high inflation is here to stay. We cannot let that happen. Restoring price stability, low, stable, and predictable inflation is paramount. Second, the Canadian economy is overheated. There are shortages of workers and of many goods and services. Demand needs to slow so supply can catch up and price pressures ease. And third, our goal is to get inflation back to its 2% target with a soft landing for the economy. Okay, so that's why they're doing it. That's the head of the Bank of Canada there. Let's discuss with Rob Levy, CKNW business analyst. Pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Rob. Thanks for coming on. Hey, nice to be with you, Mike. Okay, Rob, what are you anticipating tomorrow? Three quarter, uh, 75 basis point hike or maybe like 50, 50 basis points is the other option people are looking for here? No, I think you called it. 75 basis points is what to expect from the Bank of Canada tomorrow. And the reason is very simple. Last week, everyone was thinking it was going to be 50 basis points. But then we had yet another inflation print in Canada in September that showed core inflation, what what the Bank of Canada targets when you strip out the volatile items that are already uh, factored into that core measure, like energy prices, like food prices, is is stable you know month to month it's not going down yet so everyone's saying okay full steam ahead from the bank of canada and it's it's a challenge raising rates in this environment yeah for sure trying to put the brakes on the runaway inflation here what 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 does it mean for consumers like if you've got a variable interest rate loan this is where it hits you right this is where it hits you. And we've been reading and seeing the banks talking about it. You trigger rates uh, on variable rate mortgages where, where banks are actually reaching out to customers and saying, OK, this is a set of the options that you're faced with in this market. Because w- when we see rising rate environments, you just more of your payment goes towards interest than it does principal. But the banks are getting yeah. to a point where saying, OK, we need more interest in this market, too, because rates have gone higher. So that's that's another issue. And, you know, even consumer surveys, I think there was one from Deloitte last week that's just showing, you know, consumers are being hit every which way. And it's shifting budgets around and spending less on discretionary items because higher interest rates and inflation are, are taking a bite out of monthly budgets, monthly consumption. Okay, there is a bit of a backlash to this. I mean, there are some people pushing back and saying, well, hang on a sec. I mean, we've got, yeah, we've got inflation, but we've got recession fears as well. Could this make it even worse? I mean, I've talked to some people who think uh, another big rate hike could actually trigger an inflation or make it come on even quicker. What do you think of, of the backlash to it? Like, I'm looking at 
Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh saying that the, another rate hike, there is no merit to another interest rate hike. That's according to the NDP leader. What are you hearing? It, the thing that he's not accounting for is the Canadian dollar. And that's the reason the Bank of Canada right now is in between a rock and a hard place, because we buy a lot of goods from the United States. Uh, so what we can't see happen and what the Bank of Canada can't let happen is our overnight interest rate lag too far behind that of the United States, because then we're going to see the Canadian dollar depreciate. And we've already seen it when that U.S. dollar costs us more money. Those goods we bring up from the United States cost more money, and that's inflationary within itself. So that, that's the challenge that the Bank of Canada is facing tomorrow and, and looking out, you know, into this sort of December and into the new year is they're going to come a time. There's going to come a time when they're going to need to pause raising rates because eventually this this destruction, demand destruction that they've done from higher interest rates tackled inflation. We're going to start to see the impact in the data. But the problem is if they if they stop raising rates, that's going to be looser monetary policy. It's going to weaken the Canadian dollar and that's going to be inflationary, too. So the loony really is the X factor in all this and, and what's almost prompting the Bank of Canada to continue uh, to match U.S. policy. OK, so you think they're doing the right thing there. The, the, the government, the, the Bank of Canada really doesn't have any any other choice except to raise the rate again. Is that correct? I, that that's the environment we're in right now, I think, Mike, and it's yeah, not the bank, yeah. just the Bank of Canada. It's every central banker around the world. They their their decisions have almost been made f- for them. They have to tackle inflation. Yeah. Speaking of Rob Levy, CKNW business analyst, another central bank rate hike coming at you tomorrow on the show yesterday. Rob, we talked about a recession, whether there's one coming to Canada here anytime soon. Mark Carney certainly thinks there is the former governor of the Bank of Canada former head of the Bank of England, too. He recently told a Senate committee in Ottawa that a recession is coming to Canada likely in the new year, although he also thinks we could bounce back out of it better than other countries. What's, what is your gut feeling telling you? Like, what are, what are analysts telling you about a recession? It's it, certainly in line with that, Mike. I think the idea that a slowdown is, is happening, it's very apparent and sort of everywhere around us. And, and we're going to witness it this time of the year and into the holiday season. We're going to see it from the Bank of Canada tomorrow, too, when they lower their growth forecasts, uh, it, it, because they also have what they call their monetary policy report that comes out in tandem or just following their interest rate announcements. So we are seeing the slowdown. It's just as Carney says, and I think he's pressing on that point, you know, how much are we going to focus on it and how deep is it going to be? How long or extended is it going to be? And Canada relative to the rest of the world, uh, it's a lot more of a global problem right now than it is a Canada problem. And I think that's why we fare a little bit better. But there's going to be a little bit of a slowdown into the new year. Yeah, I think you raise an interesting point, too, about that Canada is not in this alone, right? Like this is kind of an international phenomenon of inflation uh, global supply chain problems and all the other issues that you heard Tiff Macklem outline there. Like, are, are our allies, the United States, the UK, are they also doing basically taking the same path? They are, but you look how things have fared in Canada. In Canada, where we have headline inflation at 6.9%, it's exceeding 10% in the UK and the euro area, and it's about a percentage point higher in the United States also. Uh, So one, the inflation problem in Canada isn't as bad, but also you look at the the economy, the Canadian economy, and we've got a bit of a resource sector. Uh, you got a housing market that's been battered, but showing some signs of hope. So 
it, the pain that's being felt elsewhere, especially when you look at what they're going to endure this winter in Europe and the United Kingdom in terms of energy costs and you know what that does to an overall economy because of how it takes money out of your household budget. Uh, the pain is going to be a lot worse elsewhere in the world than I think it is in Canada and the United States. Okay, so a 75 basis point increase, if that is what is announced tomorrow, that would push the central bank rate to 4%. Rob, what does that number mean to you? Like when you hear a 4% interest rate from the Bank of Canada, like I've had people tell me like, well, maybe people are freaking out too much right now. It's still, it's still relatively low. Like if you go back in time to when interest rates were like, incredible off the chart insane you know like what do you think of that number four percent yeah it is insane because in my professional career it's not something that i've ever seen so you know it's large in terms of a of a short-term interest rate uh people who are levered you know it's 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 facing some tough decisions and how you orchestrate your monthly finances and and how you set yourself up in this kind of environment and enduring definitely some pain here in the short term uh, there's there's also uh, you know we've talked about this you know five years ago two years ago that savers were being punished in this kind of environment because they couldn't earn a stable conservative return so for, for some i mean yeah. they've got a bit of an opportunity in this kind of market environment you hear gic's for you know one year money are paying four percent or near that so yeah it, it, it's a it's a mixed market and you know it, as always and unfortunately in economics the there's always winners and losers, but you know, you're levered and you got debt. This is a hard environment to be in. Uh, if you're uh, out of debt and you know, older in life, maybe this could be opportunistic for some. Rob, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike.